As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined as always by James Moore and later in today's show by our athletic colleague Jack Lang. But it's pretty obvious what we're going to start talking about today and that is the absolutely appalling 1-0 defeat to Brighton Hove Albion last night. I think it was probably the worst moment of the Jose Mourinho era so far, James. do you? Can you think of anything worse? Was Sheffield United worse or is this as bad as it's got? I mean that Sheffield United away game last season was uh, was absolutely abysmal. Um, but I, I think this feels worse because we're we're that little bit further down the road now. It feels like there there should be kind of fewer excuses for Mourinho. If you like, uh, actually, it was kind of maybe a cross between that Sheffield United game and that Bournemouth game, which I think maybe was the was it the game before or the game after? Maybe around that time, game the Bournemouth after. away game, where. Yeah, they played you know a team right down the bottom of the Premier League who were really struggling uh, and created well, next to nothing really. Um, so yeah, there's there's kind of elements of, of both of those. I, I just can't get my head around the fact that you know we talked about the lack of chances they created against Liverpool on on uh, on the pod that we put out on Friday, but that is Liverpool, and regardless of how they had been playing in recent weeks. They've still they still had Mane and Salah and Firmino in the team, so you've always going to kind of you've always got to kind of ensure against getting caught out uh, by them. And actually, if you watch the goals that Liverpool scored at West Ham uh, this weekend, you kind of see quite how dangerous those players can be when they're allowed to play on the counter attack. And you can kind of you can kind of understand why you try and sit in and avoid getting caught out like that. But uh, you know, to not cre- to not have a shot on goal between that Hoiberg goal, which was what forty eight minutes, I think it was. 49 minutes on Thursday night uh, and the 31st yeah. minute or the 30th minute of the game on, on Sunday. 17 minutes of football without a shot. You know, And Spurs were losing for, what will it be, kind of 50 minutes of that time. It's just, it's just inexcusable. And, you know, it, and again, I don't want to kind of repeat everything we said after the Liverpool game, but it, it, Mourinho can can complain about defensive errors, individual errors. And, you know, there is a point there. there are, you do get to a point with those things where the manager can't really do a lot more. But if a team aren't creating any opportunities, you're not going to win matches anyway. 
And what what else can you hope for if you don't if you don't pass the ball well? You don't you don't keep the ball well. You don't progress the ball up the pitch. You don't create any opportunities. You don't ever get a shot away. You're just not going to win any matches. It's not just about like defensive mistakes. It's about the way the team is trying or trying or, or not trying to play football. And it is it's a massive worry now. To me, that attack has regressed. You know, in the last you know put put Liverpool aside. You know, in the last what month they've played games against Crystal Palace, Wolves. Fulham and Brighton, four teams who, uh, you know, Bright- Brighton and Fulham, by the points Spurs played them, kind of turned to a bit of a corner and were a bit more solid defensively, but they are four teams towards the bottom of the Premier League, or certainly in kind of the bottom half. And Spurs have scored three goals in those four games. I mean, it's just not good enough, is it? it like, you, there's no escaping that. You can't, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't put that down to defensive errors. It is about like the lack of creativity in the team. I think if you said Spurs would, you know, play those four games and concede, what would it be? Four goals. I don't, I don't think you necessarily say that was a terrible return. It's not great not to keep a clean sheet in any of those four games. But if you're conceding one goal a game, you'd kind of back a team. With you know, forget Kane being injured. There's still Son, Bale, Bergvine, Lucas Lamella. I don't want to sound like that Tim Sherwood clip like tweeted on Saturday. But there's loads of other attacking players there who can create and, and score goals. In theory, Deli Ali. They shouldn't be dropping points because they, you know, they because Brighton or Wolves or whoever are only scoring uh, scoring one goal. The attack is a bigger worry than the defence to me. I mean, there are obviously issues there defensively, but the attack is definitely the bigger worry for me. They should be able to they should be able to blast those teams away with the players they've got. They really should. Right now, you can subscribe to the Athletic for a special price. Enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts for less than £1 per week. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to sign up and enjoy The Athletic throughout 2021. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. I think you're absolutely right what you say about Liverpool, like in the sense that after the Liverpool game, I think a lot of people were left with this feeling of, was that as bad a performance as it looked? Or was it just they were playing against the reigning Premier League champions, the 2019 Champions League winners, who made Tottenham look bad? And then when you watch the Brighton game, and Spurs are just as bad against Brighton as they are against Liverpool, you realise, oh, hold on a second, it was a shockingly bad Tottenham performance. Like Liverpool was a bad, awful Tottenham performance. Brighton was, yeah, I think, even worse. And you're right that the... Um, the absolute failure to create chances is so damning. Like, it, they were completely clueless in terms of how to move the ball up the pitch and create anything. I think, you know, in a sense, this is this is kind of the cost of the Mourinho approach, which is so individualised. And everything, you know, the way that Tottenham... We all know the way that Tottenham attack is everything goes through Harry Kane. Like, Harry Kane has got... Uh, you know, is m- by miles at the top of Tottenham's big chances created. Statistic this season with 12 so far. I think the next best is Son with seven and then a bunch of guys with four. When everything runs through Kane and then you take Kane out of the team, you effectively lobotomize the rest of the team. Like there's no, there's no brains there at all. There's no idea about how to create or do anything on the ball. But, and I think, frankly, you know, Kane's brilliance over the last year has managed to obscure the selling of Christian Eriksen and the freezing out of Deli Alley because Kane has been so dominant in that number 10 role. But when you, you know, when you don't have Kane, then suddenly you feel the absence of Ali and Eriksen a lot more. And I think it's no surprise that, you know, Eriksen's been talked of as a potential person to bring back this month. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. People are starting to ask more and more what's happened to Deli Alley. 
Uh, and yeah, it's just miserable. Like I try and think, you know, you kind of watching the game last night. I was thinking, what what are they trying to do? Like what what are, they, have they got any kind of plan? And you know, there were moments where you'd see Hugo Lloris or Toby Alderweireld hoofing the ball up from the back, and obviously with no Kane, there's no one to win it. And you know, Gareth Baylor try and jump to win the header, and you think, Christ, it's like, you know, with with except for the fact they've got Gareth Bale on the pitch, it's reminding me a little bit of February, March 2020, back when they'd have, they'd hit long balls to little Lucas Moura to lose. It's just, it's weird. It's, it's it, it does feel like it's regressed to that point, you know, the February, March 2020 bit where Spurs were playing really badly. But like you said, James, it's more damning on Mourinho because he's had longer with the players. He's got better squad now than he does then. And yet the, the football is just as bad. It didn't feel like there was ever an attacking plan. Like the, the starting no. lineup. I mean, I don't, I just can't really understand why he didn't why he didn't start Vinicius, and you know maybe that's kind of testament to the fact that he hadn't had any minutes in the Premier League really before that. I think it was like twenty two, maybe was it? I think before that game, and obviously he got forty five yesterday. To me, that whole thing really highlights the way the squad, the squad, not the team, has been managed over this over the course of the season. And you know, we saw in the last Europa League game, if you remember they kind of really laboured to get in front and they scored the goal. And then immediately, uh, they'd gone 1-0 up, but immediately, regardless of them having gone 1-0 up, Mourinho hooked, I think it was Bale and Vinicius maybe, and put on Kane and Son. I think I'm right. And it just I, I remember tweeting about it in that moment. I think we talked about it in the following pod. But to me, that just felt like you're really, you're really just telling the world that you have no faith in your fringe players. And, you know, look, I, I'm not pretending that those players have, have done anything particularly incredible this season to, to warrant a place in the team, because they haven't. But as the manager of the team, you're not just managing the team, you're managing the squad. You need to keep those fringe players hungry. You need to keep them motivated. And you need to, you need them to think when they get their opportunity, they're going to have a, the opportunity to prove themselves and to stay in the team and that they're valued. And I don't, I don't really think that the way that Mourinho has used the squad this season will make those fringe players feel that. I mean, imagine how Doherty must feel in this moment, you know. He's had a bad, he's had a bad start to the season. There's no there's no escaping that. And, and you know, if I was going to make an excuse for him, I'd say he played 60 games or however many, the stupid number it was last season for Wolves, including games in July and August in the Europa yeah. League. And that that is going to be a factor to an extent. I think the standard of his performance is probably would go beyond that in terms of what you'd expect or, or below that in terms of what you'd expect. But for, you know, for, to have him to be stuck in at left wing back on Thursday night against Liverpool I, I, and to play badly, which is kind of what you, <laughs> it's probably almost what you'd expect of a player who's not started well and then been asked to play him out of position. And it is out of position. I know he's played there before, but it is not his first choice position. Uh, to then be kind of completely dropped from the team when they haven't even got <laughs> a right back on the pitch or a right wing back. I just kind of find like how how is he going to be feeling this morning? Yeah, when Sissoko has started the game at right wing back and ended it at right back and and played quite badly. And this isn't a criticism of Sissoko because that's not his position. I mean, how, if you're Doherty this morning on the training ground, how do you feel? Like like you're going to think you've got no chance of getting in a team. You're just going to be completely like browbeaten and and you kind know, of just kind of feel completely un, unvalued and unwanted. It's to me that's strange. I mean, and I know Mourinho's style of management is is kind of tough love, and his thinking will be. The doctor should respond to that by working harder in training and you know applying himself better in matches and whatever. And maybe that is what will happen. Maybe, but I think in this day and age, more players than not will not react that way. And I think what you're about to say is that uh, 
he did all his stuff with Ndombele last season and now Ndombele has obviously proven yeah. himself to be one of the better players in the Premier League this season so you know and that would certainly be what Mourinho would nod to I guess if you were to ask him about that but I just think you can't do that with everybody yeah. <laughs> you can't do that with half the squad because it's not going to work with everybody and you're just going to kind of create a bit of a sort of I don't want to say toxic atmosphere because that's probably overstating it a little bit but I, I'd be surprised if there weren't a lot of very unhappy players there at the moment. And, you know, you've got to look at Deli Alley, and I know and I know the line is that he's injured. I, I don't know how severe that injury is, whether it's something that can be managed differently or whatever. Um, but, it, it, you know, we're recording this at, it's 25 to 12 on Monday morning at the moment. Obviously, the deadline is in 12 hours' time. We think Deli Alley is still going to be a Spurs player by the time you listen to this, be it, be it on Monday night or Tuesday morning or whenever. What, what happens to Deli Alley between now and the rest of the season? I mean, how how can you go to Deli Ali and say, I, I, actually, we do need you, we do want you. Can you play some matches? Can you score some goals for us? Because we need the goals. Yeah. I mean, I, I just I just don't feel like after everything that's happened, that's really going to be possible. The way he's been frozen out, so, you know, so he's barely been on the bench this season, let alone in the team. And I think it's going to be incredibly difficult for him to now come in and say, for Mourinho to come in, you know, to training on Tuesday morning or Wednesday or whenever, and say, actually, we on the bench against Chelsea on Thursday or against West Brom on Sunday or whenever. Uh, and you know and it's a similar thing with Bale I don't think he's been you know he needs to play to get fit and sharp that's not just going to happen on its own yeah and you can kind of tell from the way he's been playing it's moments rather than kind of matches and it just feels to me like he's he's going to they're going to have to kind of stick it out and he's going to have to start against Chelsea he's probably going to have to start against West Brom and then you're going to kind of have to see where you are then because it's not just going to happen on its own he's going to need to play himself into form and and into kind of fitness and sharpness as well and I just worry that we're going to see, you know, chopping and changing again for the next game because players didn't play particularly well when the odds were kind of stacked against them. Uh, yeah, and it, it worries me that, you know, they've got a massive game now against Chelsea in terms of like Champions League qualification. Chelsea have had the boost of uh, the first win under Churchill, two clean sheets in a row. Obviously, they're playing against a team who <laughs> like they can't create a chance, let alone score a goal. So they're really going to be backing themselves on Thursday night to come and cause us problems. And you just wonder if the league is basically going to be a bit of a write-off if they lose that game. I think it probably is. Yeah, I think you've, you've landed on something really important there, which is it feels a lot worse than it might look at a quick glance. If You, you know, like Spurs are not in a disastrous position in the league by any means. They're certainly, I, you know, they're not going to win the league, but they're certainly in the hunt for fourth. They are in a, in one final. They're still in two other cup competitions. They could very plausibly end the year with a trophy, if not more than one. And yeah, watching last night, it, it was really hard to watch how bad they were. And I think that's for a reason that you touched on, James, which is that the players looked so unhappy. Like, I know it's very easy, you know, it's very easy to make these judgments from the outside, but they really didn't look like they were playing with any kind of enthusiasm or passion or energy at all, not in the way they pressed, not in the way they passed. They looked very miserable. And it's not, you know, this is something that we've seen before from Mourinho teams. And it's generally a pretty bad sign. And I think that's why this one, you know, this 1-0 win projected this sense of doom, uh, which I certainly felt watching it. And you know we don't know if it's going to be if it's going to be fatal or not. You know, there's I think there is definitely a path out of this. I think the fact that Mourinho didn't hammer his players afterwards, but tried to be be so nice to me, that was an indication that he realizes that something does have to change. He has to somehow make the mood better and lift the mood 
and somehow encourage better performances from his players in this incredibly important run of games they've got coming up. But it's it's kind of impossible to avoid this sense of foreboding already about where this is heading, even though it's only 14 months into the Mourinho era. And I think that's really the problem, is that it's, you know, it's hard not to draw a line between this and Mourinho's third season at Chelsea, his third season at Manchester United. And to think, you know, is the writing on the wall already, James? I mean, I know in the past we've been a bit like, one question that we've often asked on this podcast is, how much should we judge Mourinho's time at Tottenham by, you know, his experiences in, in jobs of the past? I know that you, you know, there, there is a view that maybe we do this too much, maybe I do this too much. Do you think we, are you, are you starting to see Tottenham through that prism of Mourinho's failures of the past? Or do you... Do you think it's uh, we're not I, quite I, I there yet? Ca- I couldn't care less about any of that. I don't yeah. care less about. I couldn't care less about you know Mourinho and Paul Pogba or how Manchester United play. I mean, it, we shouldn't say there's nothing to yeah. take from that. But I, I think you, you don't need to look at that. Look at it through that prism because you can just look at you can just look at where Spurs are now, and yeah. it's it's kind of all there, isn't it now? And um, some of the criticism I think he had this time last year, and uh, even kind of earlier this season, particularly after the first Liverpool game, if you remember, where there was quite a lot of criticism of Tottenham's approach, and I, do, I don't think the way they played in that game was either bad or or too negative, unnecessarily negative. But yeah, I mean, it's for me, for me, in at the moment, it's difficult to see exactly how they're going to improve with this manager without spending a lot of money and. Yeah, they're not going to be able to spend a lot of money, so it, yeah. it feels like uh, this is incredibly simplistic. But it feels like Mourinho is a manager, and what they really need is a coach. If you see what I'm saying, yeah. like they need someone who can really get the best out of what they've got before they start trying to think about adding a load more to the squad. And I'm not sure Mourinho's sort of approach to man management or tactics is going to do that. I mean, I think he did a good job of like squeezing the most out of it when everyone was fit and he found a way of doing it when everyone was fit. I think if you ask any Tottenham fan, they'll tell you there was always going to be a point in the season where Kane was going to get injured. It was yeah. just going to happen. And it doesn't seem like there was even a plan in place for that. Yeah. I mean, I think I find that pretty incredible uh, that, you can, <laughs> that you can kind of be the Tottenham manager for 18 months and not have a sort of plan B in place. I just can't see that what the way they started last night can be defined as a plan B because it was just no. just chaos, really. Yeah, I th- I think you I think it's pretty clear that Mourinho wants a better defense than the defense he's got at the moment, and I think he some of his comments in the last few weeks about the individual characteristics of the defenders is kind of thing that people always call like a coded dig at Daniel Levy, and it's like not much of a code there, guys. Like it's pretty obvious what's going on here. It's he thinks the defenders aren't good enough and he wants better ones. And he wishes that they got Skriniar from Inter in the summer who they didn't get. And he looks at Liverpool buying Van Dijk for 75 million or even City buying Laporte for 60 odd million. And then Ruben Diaz from Benfica, a player that Mourinho, I think, had been interested in when he first came to Tottenham in that first transfer window. And he probably, I'm sure Mourinho must think, well, you know, if I'd got Ruben Diaz and if I'd got Laporte or if I'd got Stones from City, who was on the market last year, then maybe the Tottenham defence would be a lot better now. Um, and I think, I think that, I think that is going to be his argument. And it's actually not, it's not, it's not very different from his argument at Manchester United in the summer of 2018, where of course famously he wanted Toby Alderweireld of all people, and. Um, even Perisic, and I think maybe even Bale. I can't really remember the specifics. And Ed Woodward didn't sign the players that Mourinho wanted. And 
now I'm told that M- Mourinho wishes that he'd left that summer and not done that final half season at United because he knew how bad things were going to get. So clearly that, I think, is Mourinho's complaint. He doesn't have the defence he wants. But James, you're right to say that, you know, could he not just improve the players he's got? Like, as we've said on this podcast before, Alderweir or Dyer, Sanchez, Rodon, they're not the best four centre-backs in the world, but it's not a disastrously bad set of players. Like, you should be able to work with them, right? And get them but to he play. he did. That's the point, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> he did. In, in October, November, he did manage to put out a team that was capable of defending uh, that could shut out Manchester City and Chelsea and Arsenal and play pretty well at Anfield and restrict restrict Liverpool to relatively few chances. You know, a defected goal and a goal from the set piece. So, uh, it, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I would agree with him if he did think they needed to improve at centre back. I do think they would really benefit from bringing in, you know, an elite level centre back for that to be what yeah. they spent most of their money on. If they went out and spent. Fifty million pound on a centre back, and that was their whole budget for the summer. And I think that would be entirely stupid. Um, but he is—he's—he's <laughs> he's the coach of the football team. For yeah. you know, he is supposed to be coaching the football team, and he is the manager of the football club. And you can't—he <laughs> can't like neg people like that. You know what I mean? He's doing yeah. it incredibly publicly, and it's not just with defenders. He's done it. I, they are the players will be aware of these things being said, and you do wonder about you know, someone like someone like Sanchez who we we can't pretend this guy was performing to an elite level every week under Pochettino, even at the start of his time at Tottenham. But it does really feel like his confidence has kind of been completely like sapped over the last two years. And again, this isn't just about Mourinho. This is this has been a kind of slower aggression, a longer time aggression than that. But I find it hard to believe that if, and this isn't me because I'm suggesting that, that Hassan Hurtle should be manager of Tottenham, but if someone like that was the manager, that players like that wouldn't potentially be playing better. Yeah. If you look, if you, know, if you look at someone like um, uh, Vestergaard at Southampton, he isn't a better centre-back than Alderweireld or Sanchez or Dyer. I don't think. I don't think he's good, but I don't think he's better than those guys. O- overall, I mean, there are some areas he's better, obviously. But I, you know, if you look at someone, how someone like that is playing, it, it just feels like a good manager should be able to get less talented players to play well. Isn't that sort of the whole point of it? Yeah. Liverpool have no defenders. Like Liverpool yeah, don't exactly. have any defenders. And they've you had don't Jordan catch... Henderson playing at centre-back yeah. for like a month. They've had, Matt, they've had what, um, Fabinho playing at centre-back, they've had Henderson playing at centre-back, they've had yeah, Nat, Nat Phillips. Ki- yeah, the, kids uh, that I've never heard of playing at centre-back. And you don't catch Jurgen Klopp doing the, oh, I wish the Lord would take me now thing. And yet here we are, you know, Tottenham are playing, you know, Tottenham have got an England centre-back, a Colombia centre-back, a, a Belgium centre-back who's been one of the best players, one of the best defenders in the Premier League over the last decade. And then Joe Roden, who is one of Britain's best young defenders. Like it's not, you know, it could be worse. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. 
Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. James, just how big is the Chelsea game on Thursday? And what can they do to make it less bad? <laughs> is there anything they uh, can not, do? Not broadcast it on television? Not broadcast on TV, yeah. Um, I, I think they just need to go back to the system that they played in... The 4-3-3. Uh, those games against the top sides, yeah. And play a, a back four. Whether or not Aurier comes back in, I don't know. But yeah, play a back four with a left back, a left back, a right back, a right back, and two centre backs, yeah. a centre back. Revolutionary stuff like that. <laughs> Obviously, he he discovered this system. He came up with a system that worked incredibly well with Hoiberg and Sanchez playing. Uh, sorry, Hoiberg and Sissoko playing in front of the back four to protect and to drop in when they were needed. And it worked incredibly well. We know, obviously, further forward, there are big problems with how you replace Kane. Again, I, I don't know whether there's an easy answer to that or a suitable solution to that. But I think if you get that defence in place first and foremost, give them a bit of familiarity and solidity, I think that's that's going to give you at least something to build on. That's yeah. going to give you at least an opportunity to be in the football match. Because if they play, if they play, you know, free at the back with a right back at a left wing back or sorry a right wing back at left wing back or you know centre backs playing in weird positions in a back three or whatever uh, or a midfielder playing on the right I just think they're going to get I just think they're going to get beaten quite convincingly by Chelsea and it would be I think that would be quite a big swing in that dynamic I feel like if, if Chelsea win on Thursday night they're really going to be backing themselves to get Champions yeah. League I think because they'd, they'd be what they'd be then be ahead of Spurs I think Um, I could be wrong there uh, but they'd certainly be kind of bringing right down their necks at worst. I should look at the Premier League table, as I say, this, shouldn't I? <laughs> no. This is, this we, is we, really We don't have to, to fact-check ourselves. Oh, no, that, see, they're only behind on goal difference. So, yeah, they'd go three points ahead of Spurs. Oh, no. um, might go ahead of Chelsea as well. So, they'd be kind of starting to close their gap on Leicester and wherever. So, yeah, you, you kind of feel like there'd be momentum with Chelsea there all of a sudden. And then Spurs are in uh, what we would diplomatic call a difficult moment. The window closed, no opportunity to strengthen fringe players, seemingly not with any cause to be motivated. And Harry Kane out of the team for at least another couple of weeks. You know, where where, where do you stand from there? Yeah. I, I, yeah, like I say, I feel like, you know, there's a lot to play for this season if that does happen because there are three cup competitions. Um, and obviously one of them is a final so that, 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 that goes about saying that that is a pretty big opportunity but you do think like the opportunity to get into the Champions League from that point might be entirely on the Europa League Yeah. and if you want to do well in Europa League you need squad depth and as we were saying before I'm not entirely sure that those fringe players are going to be at it in the way that they might need to be One more quick one on the Chelsea game before we move on I just I know I kind of think this every week, but I think it's especially now. I would just be so fascinated to see this game with fans, just because, you know, the reaction, I, I do kind of feel like Mourinho's getting off the hook a bit by not having to play in front of a, in front of Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, because... Can you imagine how much, how, like that Deli Alley song, that yeah, would have just been sung know, on, like, yeah. just like six weeks, basically. Endlessly. That's just been on a loop for six weeks. And then there'd be the added banter value of an away end full of Chelsea fans and all the kind of, you know, they do fuck off Mourinho and then the Spurs fans would clap or, you know, someone would do Jose Mourinho, he left because you're shit or whatever. You know, there would just be a lot of Mourinho banter between the Chelsea and the Tottenham fans at the game and it would be like funny and good to watch and everything. And 
I feel like now this colossal game is going to be happening in the kind of strange empty stadium. And Mourinho, you know, maybe that will spare Mourinho some of the negativity that he would otherwise be directed his way by his own fans. Yeah, I, d- I do definitely think he's he's quite fortunate now that that it isn't there. And having talked about, you know, in that October November run, that we would have had the moment that his name would have first been sung in a positive light. Yeah, <laughs> he's definitely escaping over the last few. He's definitely escaped over the last few weeks. That you know, not yeah. just the Delhi Ali song being sung, which would definitely have happened. Because if you, I've seen a, uh, I'd be interested to hear your take on this. But just from speaking to my friends who are Spurs fans and the Spurs fans that I follow on social media. I'm seeing kind of unanimity against Mourinho right now. Like, nobody is enthusiastic or positive or give him time or any of that. Is that is that unrepresentative, James, or, or what? I mean, it's mostly been what I've seen. I have seen a few sort of what I assume are kind of young kids on Twitter, sort of, you know, kind of Mourinho stands, basically, who, who I guess will probably defend him in any circumstances, kind of, you know, saying that he's done an incredible job or, or in the circumstances yeah. done an incredible job and that it's ludicrous to question him. But I think most of the people that I actually know and have spoken to are, are kind of <laughs> fairly despondent about the whole thing at the moment. I mean, what I would say about that is obviously we've been here a couple of times, you know, yeah. uh, like I said, this time last year or, or maybe slightly later when things look fairly terrible. And even at the start of the season, you know, admittedly only after one game, but I think people were fairly despondent after the Everton game and worried about what the season would be. So I would say there's kind of a chink of light in that regard that it has seemed to have kind of bottomed out a couple of times and then they've gone on a bit of a run and it's felt like they turned a bit of a corner but I don't don't think it's a good sign that keeps happening you can't possibly be no definitely not looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hi, I'm James McNicholas, and I'm here to tell you about the latest series of Beyond the Headline, the making of Big Sam. If I did anything wrong, why did they pay me off? You see, Sam Allardyce seemingly can't quit English football, and English football can't quit him. But why? Why does football keep coming back to Sam Allardyce? To answer those questions and many more, you'll hear from former Hull City manager Phil Brown. He didn't mind having the crack, he didn't mind having the banter, but he would he would prove his way was the right way. Dundee United manager Mickey Mellon. I seen for Sam Allardyce, really. And of course, Father Joe Young, owner of Limerick FC, where the Big Sam story began. Now I said, Sam, this is the ultimate goal. Now I'll show you what we have. And I brought him up and he said, Jesus, Father Joe, are you serious? I said, look, nothing is impossible to those who believe. 
You'll learn about his time in America at the Tampa Bay Rowdies, the way he revolutionised English football, and of course, the England debacle. You can hear it all now and ad-free via the Athletic app. Just search for Beyond the Headline now. So we are now delighted to be joined by our athletic colleague Jack Lang, who is our expert on all things Brazilian and Portuguese. Jack, great to have you on the show. Uh, Thanks for joining us. You've written some really interesting stories recently, which I think Spurs fans will take a lot of interest in. Uh, I want to start off by talking to you about Carlos Vinicius, a man who provided maybe the only good moment uh, Spurs have had in the last few weeks when he did quite a good shot that was saved with his left foot yesterday. Uh, which was definitely Spurs' best attack of yesterday. It was also better than any of their attacks in the second half of the Liverpool game on Thursday evening. Honestly, I'd be surprised if they could do anything as good against Chelsea this Thursday. Uh, what's the story with, with Vinicius? Because he's not someone that we know an awful lot about, but you, you seem to know more about him than most. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty much the definition of a left-field signing. It's a very strange career path this guy's had. So I'm sure some of the listeners will have read our, our big piece on him when he signed. But it really is worth reiterating that it's just basically someone who's had one season at the top level. And I don't think, you know, when, when Benfica got him, I, I doubt they were convinced they were signing a player who's going to really score as many goals as he did. 24 in all competitions last season. I think that in itself was amazing and the, you know the fact that he kind of parlayed that into a Premier League move is, is, is just all weird like I think it, he, he does offer something and I think he's quite an interesting player but it didn't seem like something that would necessarily be wildly successful obviously you guys know more than most that back up to Harry Kane is a pretty weird job title to have and no one really really good wants that I suppose it was quite a low risk move given the, the loan fee but yeah, I mean, I think he's a handy player. I think he's, I think he's okay. I think he's, you know, in certain situations he's good. But it's just a, a strange move all round. It's just he, he's kind of swapped potential Champions League football for the odd outing at Marine. And yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't imagine it will last beyond a year. Or that, though maybe you guys know more than me on that. Am I right in thinking that he nearly? He nearly gave up football as a young as a youngster, or came to football very late. There was some strain. He had some kind of strange journey to Benfica, right? Yeah, I mean the the almost gave up football as a youngster line is one that I generally generally try to avoid because I think that is thrown around when you're talking about you know the nature of these profile pieces when you speak to players, former coaches, players, mentors, is that they do slightly turn up the drama. So the, the, the almost quitting football for me isn't the main one with him. It, it's the fact that he was playing as, as a centre-back until he was, you know, basically 20. Oh, wow. Um, and you, maybe you can see that in his physique. He's kind of, yeah. uh, he is quite wardrobe in, in size. But, and he was playing for the Palmeiras youth team and that you know that's obviously it's a good youth team that's no bad place to come through but he was like fifth or sixth choice center back until one of his coaches during a random training session needed a striker and thought okay well let's just chuck Vinicius up there see what he does and he was apparently okay and yeah I mean since then that that's a weird first step in a career that ends at the Premier League and then even then you know it's kind of a it's a magical mystery tour of teams. He kind of moved 
from Palmeiras into the fourth division in Brazil. Gets a very strange move to the Portuguese second division, then gets bought by Napoli. I mean, at, at every turn, this is a weird career. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's not the kind of Wikipedia page you look at and think, right, this guy's going to be like the long-term solution, I wouldn't say. He kind of feels like one of those players who in like, when he's kind of 30, 31, he'll join like, like West Brom or someone, some someone kind of down towards the bottom of the Premier League in sort of six, seven years' time. And then we'll kind of be, did, did he play for Tottenham? <laughs> he was at Tottenham, wasn't he? Anyway, that'd be a good piece for you to write then when that happens, Jack. We'll both yeah, you, I'll, I'll just put that on like the, the very, yeah, very long-term yeah, yeah. list. Yeah. Have you seen, James, have you seen enough from Vinicius to suggest that he is anything... He's better than Vincent Janssen? Or is he... How would you rank him compared to Janssen and Llorente? Well, it's funny because Janssen like Vinicius had had basically one season at the top level yeah literally one, one good season yeah, one that run one t- was it Arze he played for yeah. and he played like in the lower leagues of Holland before that um, no I think I think he's been better I think I, yeah. I think uh, he's probably actually played more which I guess makes a difference yeah there have been moments He like physically he looks quite good like he should be good at kind of playing this back to goal and bringing other players in which I know is kind of a bit simplistic but uh, that is kind of that is an option when they haven't got Kane in the team isn't it or it should be yeah um, I guess the question is whether or not Spurs have got like <laughs> someone who can play up with him and make runs off him and maybe they don't really have that I guess that might be the problem they've got um, but yeah you're right I mean that shot he had yesterday was like a decent a decent chance and a good save some of his play some of his kind of interplay in some of those Europa League games is quite good I think he had a, didn't he get a couple of assists before he got his first goal I mean all his goals have been tap-ins by that one against Marine the last one against Marine yeah but I mean You've got to get into those positions, Jack. That's the thing. Yeah, it's true. I do think he's better than Janssen. Uh, he just seems to put himself... I mean, that is a low bar. Oh, yeah, yeah. We should be, we should be clear yeah. about that. He just seems to put himself about a lot more. And he seems to be, like, much more sort of physically engaged in the game. So, yeah, I'm not too down on him. Like, compared to, say, you know, compared to the other Spurs loan signing from Benfica of recent years, Jetson Fernandez, who has not looked like a footballer at all, if we're honest, and is now seemingly on his way to Galatasaray... Jack, I'd say that, you know, Vinicius does look a lot more legit than Gedson. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not saying much at all. Gedson has been, I mean, I wrote a piece, a kind of quick turnaround piece when Gedson signs, like, who is this guy? And pretty telling, I would say, when you're kind of, when you've lost your central midfield, kind of box-to-box role to Adel Tarapt. Tarapt's a good player, I like Tarapt, but, you know, for a potential Portuguese champions, it's a... You know, the fact that you come through the youth team and then you kind of get usurped by this weird maverick who's come in and viewed as a more kind of solid, almost better all-round player than you are is probably not the best sign. But yeah, I mean, Judson's just weird. Vinicius is also a bit weird, but not as bad. I mean, presumably you guys don't expect Vinicius to be around for at Spurs for four or five years. No, I'd be amazed. Like you, yeah, I'd be amazed if he was there next season. I mean, I think if he was like, if he was like nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, you kind of look at him and think, yeah, that that's someone who's worth persisting with. But at twenty-five, um, and it, you know, be twenty-six before the end of the season, it, like it doesn't really feel like his ceiling is going to be high enough to to kind of bother paying. I mean, I think the the clause on the loan isn't it like forty-five million quid or something? It's something ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Done, you know, if he had come in and done well, then. It, it makes sense, but he's probably not done well enough, or certainly in the first half of the season. 
I suppose there's still quite it, a lot of games isn't, to play. Isn't Jetson's 45 million as well? Yeah, like, 50 uh, million euros. It's 45 million just, just like the, the blanket Benfica buyout clause, like for players <laughs> they probably know on that kid. Yeah. Someone else I want to talk about, Jack, while we've got you, is a genuine Brazilian Spurs legend. And that is the great Sandro. Uh, you did such a good interview with him on The Athletic uh, last week, I think. Uh, we've had lots of really positive comments from Spurs fans about it. How did you, um, yeah, how, how did you find the great man? Is he still playing at the moment or is he? Yes and no. He hasn't retired. He says he's still looking for a club. Uh, he's been without one for about two months now. So he was he was in Brazil's first division with uh, Goiás, which is a kind of middling, fairly underwhelming team from from a not very big football city. And he kind of did okay. I think his contract was running down and basically the club like most Brazilian clubs is a bit screwed financially. And it sounded like he kind of agreed to call it a day a month early just to kind of basically let them off paying him. So he was kind of, to be honest, he wasn't overly, didn't sound overly confident about finding a new club. He said he'd had a few offers, um, a, a kind of few vague links, but no one had put a contract on the table. Um, and then, yeah, which obviously prompted the question, is retirement beckoning? And he it didn't seem too didn't seem too distressed about that idea. To be honest, he said he'd been kind of doing a lot of reflecting uh, during this period at home, thinking about the coaches he'd had and and what he liked about each one or, or didn't like about them, kind of taking notes. And I think seems like someone who's who's ready to kind of make that tr- tr- transition into coaching, which is you know it's a shame because he's thirty one. He's not not old in in football terms, but obviously a, a fair few injuries in those legs. And I loved what he said about Harry Redknapp and the uh, amazing influence that Harry had had. Can you t- tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, he, he's often, he's done interviews in the past when he's spoken very, very warmly about uh, Redknapp. And it the difficulty is when, when players are talking about someone like Redknapp, Redknapp is someone who inspires um very glowing reports but maybe not very specific ones so yeah oh harry what a guy just such a such a good bloke is harry and that's fine um to some degree and there was a bit of that from sandro but what i really liked was him talking about training in in england like and and he said redknapp wasn't always at training redknapp kind of delegated and you know as i'm sure you guys are are aware didn't see redknapp as a very kind of necessarily a details man, a hands-on man, but he said he kind of created the culture and, and training was very kind of to the point, very uh, short and sharp and get your work done, work on X, Y, Z and, and then get out of there. And he said that basically for the, the whole of the rest of his career before that in Brazil, then after it in Italy, he just found every kind of the, the intensity didn't match what he found at Spurs. And that I think coupled with, with Redknapp's obvious paternal side I think, yeah, really warmed him to to his few years in England. James, what are your memories of of Sandro as a player? He was really good, wasn't he? Like we're not we're not putting this on. He was great. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I tw- when when Jack's interview came out, I tweeted that he was like among the best defensive midfielders in the Premier League in yeah. like that for like a short window. And there are a few people kind of pushing back on that and saying that it was a bit over the top. But I mean, he really was like yeah. incredibly good. Um, yeah, I mean, he the, the funny thing about uh, uh, Sandro 
is that he was a player they actually did sign from Inter in Brazil because the other one of course was Damiao who they were linked with for age and then didn't sign oh, yeah. so I remember when Sandro signing it, it kind of feeling like Damiao was inevitably now going to join and unfortunately it never happened vomiting on the pitch pretty regularly that's one of my memories Yeah, he, he did that quite a few times I don't know that was something you talked about Jack <laughs> you, you suggested I ask him about that but I uh, you I, bottled it Essentially, yes. Okay. Yeah. Didn't 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 find space for it was what I was going to say. But it's yeah, hard to segue onto a question about that. <laughs> the um, just going back to what James was saying about how good he was. Like, I know physique isn't everything, and there are a lot of players who are, who are massive and rubbish. But he really when you play in that position and you have you know a reasonable degree of technical prowess as well, and you look at just the absolute size of him, and he was someone who I think would genuinely strike fear into a into an attacking midfielder or a central midfielder. And he wasn't a particularly violent player, would, you know, put himself about, but just almost like a kind of just preventative physique about him. Like you, you look at him and you didn't really want to cross him. And I think, I, I mean, I don't have any problem in saying that he was one of the best around for that short period. I, th- I thought he was really, really good before the injury. Well, what's quite interesting is he's like, I think, a, a couple of months older than Bale, who he would have played with at Spurs. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, and like younger than Lloris, I think. And it's quite weird to think, you know, it would have been impossible at that point, 10 years ago, to kind of think that he would be like so far behind those two. And, you know, obviously Bale hasn't had a good season. Um, and Lloris, I think you'd probably say, was in decline, but they are at least both playing for a Premier League club up towards the top of the Premier League. But for Sandro to just kind of completely go off the radar over the last decade. I mean, obviously he had injuries like you mentioned. It is, it is crazy to think how quickly those things can turn. So he kind of came, you know, he kind of came out of relative obscurity, really. I mean, obviously, like into a big club in Brazil, particularly then. I think they were doing quite well, weren't they? They were kind of in Libertadores and stuff. Yeah, they won. They won it just before yeah. he left. But he, I don't think he was. It wasn't like a sort of you know when Neymar came over from Brazil. It wasn't like you know he was like a massively heralded player. It wasn't like someone that everyone was talking about, like Damiao. It was kind of a bit off radar and it all kind of seemed like it all happened very quickly and then it faded away almost just as quickly and in the space of like three years he'd gone from kind of being someone no one had heard of to being one of the better players in that position in the Premier League to sort of going off to QPR and not doing especially well. It's mad how quickly that can happen. Just to underline that, when he signed, he was sufficiently unknown that that Redknapp had to give like a quote saying what he was like. And the quote is great because he firstly compares him to Socrates, which is ludicrous. And then kind of goes, oh, yeah, but he's not actually like Socrates, is he? And then he compares him, I think the players he compares him to, like Abu Dhabi is one and Patrick Vieira, which it's a fairly glowing assessment, isn't it? And, you know, maybe maybe a touch of Vieira in, you know, the sheer physicality and ranginess. But yeah, certainly not the kind of player who everyone by default knew loads about when he arrived. I mean, to be fair, Diaby, his career was basically kind of derailed by injuries in a similar sort of way. So actually that's quite prescient from Redknapp, really. I was really pleased to hear that he's still got that Bobby George dartboard because I, um, so I, I interviewed Sandro at his house in Chigwell in, it was like uh start of the 2012-13 season. So after AVB had replaced Redknapp. And to be honest, by that point, I think Sandro was probably kind of on the way down already. Really, he was never—he was always—he was better under Radnap than he was under AVB. And um, you know, I think he'd had his first knee ligament injury by that point. But I remember thinking he was just an incredibly like nice, funny guy. Like he liked playing his guitar and having a laugh. And 
he was a bit of a sort of social hub, I think, for the other Spurs players at the time, even though he'd only been in the country a few years. I think players naturally gravitated towards him and he liked hosting them around for barbecues at his house and everything. And, he, yeah, it's it's kind of a shame, I think, when you see a player who's not really been able to fulfil their early promise in a career like that. At the same time, he's also had a good career by any standards. Like, he's played at a very high level in Brazil and in England and in Italy. And he's won things, he's earned a lot of money and he's had... He's, had a pretty great time of it, Jack. So, I mean, did did you get a sense that he's got regrets about not not becoming a kind of iconic player or or not? Yeah, slightly. I, I think as I tried to to kind of hint at in my piece, the the overall um, the overall vibe I got from him was very pretty happy with how his life's going. I mean, he's, he's he was there living on his kind of family farm, seemed to have all of the members of his family around him. Spent had like a big big thing on New Year's Eve, like Heredia Gomez went to his place on New Year's Eve. Um, again, like the social aspect of it, he, he seems to be a very popular, well-rounded guy. And there was certainly none of the, uh, you know, it, it wasn't an emotional interview. He wasn't remembering these these horrendous moments and thinking, oh God, what could have been? It was kind of, it was wistful. Like, I think I, I think he's very happy with what he has. I think he he seems to kind of to wonder how far he could have gone. He was kind of, he was listing the clubs who had been interested in Real Madrid, Milan city was obviously the most, um, the most realistic move in terms of an actual offer that he turned down. Um, so I would say, yeah, probably, probably some regrets, but nothing that's tearing him up inside. And, you know, that, that just good spirit came across in just his generosity. I mean, we were on the phone for an hour and then, the um the WhatsApp cut out and he called back and then it cut out again and sent me a message and in the in the in the evening I said I just said look sorry I couldn't get you again thanks a lot for the time he sent a nice voice message when we published it I sent him the link and he said oh can you I, I said this got a really nice reaction from the Spurs fans a lot of people really enjoying remembering your time and he said oh can you send me some of the reactions so I screenshotted the um the comments page below the line on the Athletic three or four of the nicest comments and he he replied saying oh that's so good to hear I love that just like so yeah it seems just seems fairly content with his lot so I, I wouldn't I'm not going to think of Sandro from this point and think oh poor bloke ravaged by injuries I think he's I think he's in a pretty good place excellent well um, it's really good to hear yeah I loved reading that piece and it's really good to hear more about the great man because he's someone who means a lot to Spurs fans I think um, and it's good to hear how he's doing. Um, that's all we've got time for on this week's podcast. Thank you very much for joining us, Jack. It's been great to have you on. My pleasure. Hopefully have you on again before the end of the season. Um, thank you very much, James, as well. And thank you, producer Tom. And thank you to all our listeners for all the nice messages that we've been getting. Uh, we will be back again, I think, next week, by which point, who knows what will have happened at Tottenham. But... Uh, Obviously, they've got Chelsea this Thursday, West Brom on Sunday. Uh, you know, I am not going to make any predictions about those two games. So let's wait and see. But we'll be back again with the podcast next week, looking back on those games and looking forward to the massive Everton FA Cup game in the middle of next week. And we look forward to being back with you then. The Athletic. <laughs>